No, Elon Musk did not ruin Twitter. Politics did. Quote, Beware those who are quick to censor. They are afraid of what they do not know. Beware those who seek constant crowds, for they are nothing alone. End quote. Charles Bukowski. An old friend texted me recently to ask how I was handling the new Twitter. I had to think for a minute, and then I realized that in the language of the left, he meant that Elon Musk had bought the site, and now it's overrun by hate speech and neo-Nazis. Do I still feel safe using it? Oh, I texted back. I'm not in the bubble of the left anymore, so it doesn't bother me. I like it. I'm a fan of free speech. There was a long pause, something I've become accustomed to when conversing with someone on the left. They don't want to argue. They don't want to go any further. They just want to slowly back away. The idea that Twitter was now overrun by hate speech was just an accepted reality because that is how much power the blue checks on Twitter have to influence the mainstream media narrative, which trickles down everywhere. But when a viral video circulated with a BBC reporter who could not name even one example of hate speech, that didn't make the news in the mainstream because it contradicted the narrative. Here is a video of Elon Musk with a BBC reporter. We've spoken to people very recently who were involved in moderation and they just say they just there's not enough people to police this stuff particularly around um particularly around hate speech um in the company do, do, is that well, something that you, want to you talking about i mean you use twitter right do you see a rise in hate speech i mean I, but just a personal anecdote like what do you do i don't personally my uh for you i would see i get i get more of that kind of content yeah personally that's but, what i'm asking for examples can right you, can you name one example I, I honestly don't use. I, 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 honestly, you I don't. Can't name I, a single example. I'll tell you why, because I don't actually use that for you feed anymore, because I, I just don't particularly like it. I only look at my, my followers. You said you've seen more hateful content, but you can't name a single example, not even one. I'm not sure I've used that feed for the last three or four weeks, and I. Well, I how did you see the hateful content? Content. Because I've been, I've been using, I've been using Twitter since you've taken it over for the last six months. Okay, so then you must have at some point seen that you for you hateful content. I'm asking for one example. Right. And you I, can't I, give us a more. And, and, and I'm saying, I, I, then I, I say, sir, that you don't know what you're talking about. Really? Yes, because you can't give me a single example of hateful con- content, not even one tweet, and yet you claimed that the hateful content was high. Well, that's a false. People will say all sorts of nonsense. I'm literally asking for a right. single example, and you can't name one. Right, and as, as I've already said, I don't use that feed. But let's, well, how let, do you know that? I don't think this is getting anywhere. You literally said you experienced more hateful content and then couldn't name a single example. Right, and as I said, I, That's haven't, absurd. I, haven't, I haven't actually looked at that feed. Then how would you know this hateful weeks. content? Because I'm saying that's what I saw a few weeks ago. I can't give you an exact example. Let's move on. We, have, we only have a certain amount of time. Um, well, COVID misinformation. The story will make the rounds on the right, but the mainstream narrative has more power. And if a story contradicts the government's official narrative, it will never make the news. That's still true with Musk as the new owner, but it's a step up from the government using Twitter as a filter to silence dissent. That Twitter users had enough power and status to decide reality is what made Twitter dangerous. This has been true since the beginning as it slowly became the most powerful propaganda tool the Democrats had. Once Musk took over Twitter and decided the blue checks were granting status to people deemed special, but not to others, 
he set about messing with their own self-importance by taking away their privilege of the verification badge, giving users who pay a monthly fee the opportunity to have a blue check instead. What is brilliant about this, and maybe most people don't get it, is that Musk understood the collective power of the blue check army, and now he's punctured it, dismantled it, like stealing all of their horses in the middle of the night, leaving them nowhere to go to fight the next battle. But they aren't used to anyone challenging their power. Musk has been feeling the impact of their collective wrath ever since. How dare you? I'm not paying for that, they proclaimed. But oh, how delicious it will be to see some of these once mighty prominent legacy blue checks naked without that little verification symbol. Supposedly that's somehow ruined Twitter. What it's done is democratize it. It might be more chaotic now, maybe even slightly more unpredictable, but that makes it more thrilling, not less. What ruined Twitter was the hashtag resistance, transforming the platform into one massive propaganda outlet for the Democrats in an imaginary battle with Donald Trump that began in 2017 when the company tweaked its algorithm to push more engaged tweets to the top of everyone's feed. Even if they have a choice to see the latest tweets, most prefer to see what tweets are driving the narrative in a given day so they can ride the wave of outrage, whatever is trending, whatever person is it, who can be dunked on, humiliated, or bullied into an apology or chased off the platform entirely. The bullying on Twitter had become a problem, not just for users, but corporations and institutions that were suddenly worried about being hurled into the public arena for shaming. That is both Twitter's curse and its power, which is why Musk never needed to sweat competition like Substack notes. As someone who has been swarmed and bullied more times than I can count, I already feel a little more free using Twitter now. They're right, it has changed, but Musk didn't ruin it, he rescued it. Elon's stumble. Elon Musk has made, by my calculations, only one major mistake since he took over Twitter, and that was assuming journalist Matt Taibbi owed him something after he broke the all-important Twitter files story. He thought Taibbi should move his substack over to Twitter to help Twitter profit. But this vindicated the hysterical rantings by people like Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Mehdi Hassan. They accused Taibbi and others of being bought and paid for by the richest man in the world. Now they had proof that was the intention all along. Taibbi, however, was never working for Musk. And if he has any loyalty, it's to Substack, where he's built his substantial following of readers like me, who rely on him to tell us the truth. It's also his main source of income. Musk isn't paying him. It wasn't so much what he did to Taibbi that was the mistake. It was more about giving up a powerful chess piece he had with the alliance of journalists investigating the Twitter files. Despite how the legacy media has been trying to downplay it, it is the story of the year, maybe of the decade. This was not a fight worthy of Musk and the power he now holds with Twitter. Here's a video of Matt Taibbi being interviewed on Fox News. Yep. Um, Matt, I want to ask you about your sort of open uh, discussion or spat or whatever you want to call it with Elon Musk because um, he is restricting you or from putting your articles on Twitter because you're also putting them on Substack, who he sees as a competitor. What do you want people to understand about that? I think this is a misunderstanding. I mean, I was working at Substack when I, uh, I was a Substack contributor when I started doing the Twitter files. 
I, I feel like I'm caught in the middle of a dispute between two companies. Um, I like Elon a lot. I think he's got um, a lot of good qualities, and I think he did a tremendous thing for the public uh, in opening up the Twitter files uh, for, for the population to see. I hope he continues doing that. You know, if he's not happy with me, there, there's um, lots of other journalists who can do that job. Um, but it's it's unfortunate because I think, you know, this, this whole situation, uh, people learned a lot, uh, uh, you know, a lot of things that they would never have learned without, um, you know, him to, making that very, very significant decision. But if he's shutting you down, do you think that he is the proponent of free speech that he purports to be? Well, that's clearly problematic, right? I mean, I, I think that's one of the things I, I feel saddest about is that it, it undermines the argument um, you know, that we need free speech across the Internet when the person who, you know, identified uh, initially as a proponent of free speech is, you know, blocking somebody because, you know, they're part of a commercial dispute um, or for some other reason. Uh, people see that. I, I actually think the algorithmic censorship is much more dangerous and much more severe. But these individual instances of sort of cartoon censorship are, are, are what people are going to pay attention to. All right. Um, it, it's good to talk to you. We'll follow that story and see where it goes. I hope you'll come back and join us again. Thank you. And frankly, Taibbi didn't deserve it. He put his reputation on the line and was interrogated by Democrats in Congress who treated him like a traitor to his own country. He had to sit there as Mehdi Hassan performed some odd gotcha theater just so he could send out tweets anticipating the pats on the head from the smug and self-righteous brigade. Get him, they collectively hissed. How dare he try to embarrass the security state, to hold the powerful to account? How dare he do journalism? Taibbi and Musk were on the same side, and fracturing that relationship and devaluing the Twitter files is too big of a win for the blue checks. Substack Notes was never going to be a threat to Twitter. No other social media site has the power to humiliate influential high-status people. It is the designated arena for public shaming and it's the only one. Unfortunately for the left, they don't realize they were largely responsible for making Twitter that powerful, and now it's backfiring on them. Musk should have Taibbi back to work on the Twitter files, to keep up the pressure and drive heat from Substack back to Twitter to form a powerful resistance against the dominant groupthink. Musk is under enormous pressure now with the legacy media attacking him daily, not to mention our government seeking his destruction. To the Biden administration, he barely exists except as a threat, not with his SpaceX program or Tesla. That does illustrate perfectly what the modern Democrats value, and it's not success or hard work or innovation. Regardless, Musk's power in working with Taibbi and others on the Twitter files, whether they continued or not, was making them sweat. Otherwise, there would not have been such a massive effort to pretend they were meaningless. For podcast listeners, we're looking at a tweet from David Fromm that says, Trump Russia was real, the Twitter files were fake. And another one that says, there's a fool at every card table and the Twitter files substackers who played cards with Elon Musk are only just now figuring out who it was. What a sad state of affairs when people like David Fromm, your classic blue check, marinate in their own smug satisfaction their fame, such as it is, being a big fish in a tiny pond, hopelessly addicted to the hearts and the RTs. Imagine being a guy who did matter once, 
now having to turn to a flattering reflecting pool to feel a tiny flicker of importance. Their job was supposed to be to chase the story, as Taibi did. Instead, their jobs became chasing the reporters. Elon's warning. 2016 was the first time Mark Zuckerberg put his powerful new toy, Facebook, to the test, and it helped Trump win. But by 2020, Zuckerberg, probably because he wanted to absolve himself of the guilt of 2016, helped the Democrats with not just a 400 million cash infusion, but also that same technology to find the right voters, not to suppress their vote, but to collect their ballots. The only advantage human beings have or have ever had is they're the smartest beings on the planet. But soon that will not be true. In fact, like next week. So when AI becomes stronger than we are, what do you do exactly? And what does it mean for democracy? We asked Elon Musk about contingency plans for dealing with advanced general intelligence. Here's part of that conversation. You've heard people say we should just blow up the server farms because there's no way to, once it, this gets rolling, there's no way to slow it down. What do you think of that? Well, the, the, the really heavy-duty intelligence is not going to be uh, distributed all over the place. It'll be in uh, a limited number of server centers, if you say, like, very, like very sort of deep AI, heavy-duty AI. It's not... Um, I mean, if democracy is, you know, government by the people, each person's vote is equal to every other person's vote, I mean, and people are choosing their votes freely, can you have a democracy with this? Well, that's why I raise the concern of um, AI being a significant influence in elections. Um, and, and even if you say that AI doesn't have agency, well, it's very likely that people will use the AI um, as a tool uh, in elections. Um, and then... It, you know, if the AI is smart enough, it, it, are they using the tool or is the tool using them? So I think things, things are getting weird, and they're getting weird fast. If Zuckerberg has data on almost 300 million Americans, imagine how easy it would be to find those exact voters to pull in wins in key swing states where the enthusiasm gap would have led to a second term for Trump. While no one can ever prove that this is what they did, Molly Hemingway's book on the 2020 election details just how deep Zuckerberg's involvement went. Now factor in the power of AI. Democrats are ready to use influencers already whoring themselves out to big brands to convince a generation raised on brands to imprint on the Democratic Party. It won't be that hard to use AI to ensure the right news gets to the right people and the bad news stays out. They don't even need the blue check army anymore with AIs shaping the media narrative. The Democrats seem to only want power now. They've sacrificed everything they used to value, from objecting to dark money and Citizens United, to aligning themselves with the deep state, defending the FBI and the CIA. They're certainly not the Democratic Party I grew up supporting. The War of the Words. So much of the reaction to Trump had to do with what the left had become before 2016. If political correctness was already a problem in the 90s, by 2015, it had become almost a crisis in America. Everyone noticed it. Well, I will say comedy, it's interesting. Comedy is, I do think, is, the, you know, supposed to push the line, push towards the lines of the medium. There are more people now who will let you know if they think you went over the line than ever before. Don't I know it. I mean, you have to yeah. feel the same yeah. way about comedy. Yeah, but they keep moving the lines in for no reason. Right. 
I, I, I do this joke about um, uh, the way people need to have, justify their cell phone. I need to have it with me because people are so important. Right. You know, I said, well, they don't seem very important the way you scroll through them like a gay French king. <laughs> you know, it's just... <laughs> well... That's very offensive to the gay French king. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the, I did this yeah. line recently in front of an audience. <laughs> and you can... You know, comedy's where you can kind of feel like an opinion. And they thought, yeah. what do you mean, gay? What are you talking about, gay? What are you saying, gay? What are you, what are you doing? What do you, what do you mean, you know? And I thought, are you kidding me? I mean, we can't even... <laughs> you, I could imagine a time, and, and this is a serious thing, I can imagine a time when people say, well, that's offensive to suggest that a gay person moves their hands in a flourishing motion, <laughs> and you now need to apologize. I mean, th there's a creepy PC thing out there that really bothers me. But you I... can also screw up. Yes, you, you can, can also screw up. screw up. And, you know, I, it, it happens once in a blue moon, and you hear about it on Twitter halfway, you know, just as soon as the, the magazine has hit the Internet. And sometimes we put the cover out early, and the covers court controversy even more than the cartoons do. Yes. And This video that, talked about the rise of political correctness, sort of tying it to the Frankfurt School and its influence on colleges with critical theory. Watching this video is shocking because it could have been made today. What was confined to college campuses has now become our entire country at the hands of the Democrats and their powerful alliance with cultural and corporate America. For the first time, Americans today are not free to say what they think. If they say something deemed offensive or insensitive or worst of all, hate speech, they may be in serious trouble. They may be punished for violating the unholy commandments of the 90s commonly known as political correctness. But is political correctness a new phenomenon? We'll show you tonight that political correctness has been in the making for more than eight decades. And it seems that a deteriorating society is exactly what political correctness strives for. But just what is political correctness? As you're about to see, political correctness is nothing less than a Marxist ideology. Marxism translated from economic into cultural terms in an effort going back not to the 1960s, but to World War II. The left colonized the internet first, and especially the social media empires. Twitter was co-opted by Barack Obama's campaign in 2008 as a revolutionary way to mobilize young people. From then on, the Democrats, or left-leaning, college-educated eggheads, dominated Twitter. Trump was the first major threat to that power, as Trump used Twitter in a way no other Republican or even any politician had. He used it to go over the heads of the media and get his message to the people directly. The more he tweeted, the bigger his follower count grew. Trump was the existential crisis to the left, not because of anything he did, but because of what he said. That he was overtly offensive at a time of extreme word policing was his superpower. And the thing about him that sent much of the left cascading into waves of hysteria for the four years he was in power. But that was always what Trump represented. He was the guy who shocked people with what he said because it was brutally honest. That was true in the 80s and true on his show. Anyone who was a fan of The Apprentice often took what Trump said with a grain of salt. But the eggheads on Twitter, the intellectuals, weren't watching The Apprentice. So they took what he said literally. 
Here is a clip from The Apprentice. Excuse me, you dropped to your knees. Yes. I begged to do this. It must be a pretty picture you dropped to your knees. John and Dennis thought I should be. Omarosa said me. Some other people said you. And in the end... By interrupting me when I'm knocking him, what are you doing to yourself? Because I'm being truthful, and I'll always be truthful. He, he, How stupid say, is that, right? He tried to outthink me, and nobody outthinks me. Nobody. I felt like a couple of these girls were like crawling up Star's ass. I feel like even Hope or Marley or any, I, I can't. By the way, much nicer now that she lost all the weight. <laughs> it would not be very comfortable for you no, back the then. The other way, it wouldn't have been acceptable. No. Before we find out who won, mm -hmm. let me ask you this. Do you think that I should comb my hair like him? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is my hair. You know that. It's a hairline. Yeah. It's actually a hairline. I think your scalp was good. And from 1980s Trump. But you tell us also in your book, you left Queens and you left Brooklyn for Manhattan to, uh, to get away from rent control. You're, you're honest to tell us in no, this I'm book. I'm honest. Hey, I'm not running for anything, Phil. I'm not running for office. I don't have to lie in a book. I want to tell the facts, okay? <laughs> rent, I mean, do you, want me to, do you want me to say little fibs and little this and well, little that and how much we all love rent control and what a great thing it's been for New York? It's been a disaster for New York. It's badly hurt New York. It's crippled New York. It's made yeah. it impossible for... A lot of people to live in New York, and, and you see what's happening. You look at the Bronx, you look at certain parts of Queens and Brooklyn, you see what rent control's done, and I'm, I think you know it as well as anybody else. Rent control, and I'm one of the few developers in the world that would ever say it, some forms of rent control are sometimes necessary to protect the elderly, to protect people that truly don't have the money. But when you have multimillionaires, and not all instances of this, Phil, there's not all instances, but you go to Manhattan, the prime sections of Manhattan, where you have rent control and rent stabilization all over. Those are wealthy people in many instances. And I don't mean in every instance, Phil, but I mean in many, and I would say in a majority. You have multi-millionaires in some cases living in apartments for $200, $300, and $500 a month that should be paying many times. This is going to sound a little unusual, but New York rents can be ten and $20,000 a month. What does that mean? What does that mean, Phil? That means that the city can't tax because if a wealthy person's paying $300 a month, you can't really tax that beyond a certain point, 20% of that or whatever it might be. So the city's always short of funds. It's a joke what's happened. And the people that need rent control, and there are some indeed, those aren't the people that have it. It's the people with the connections. Somebody knows Trump. Somebody knows somebody else. They call up. They say, do me a favor. That's yep. what it's all but about. If, if, uh, we, this, this audience wants to get in here. Mr. Trump, sir. If your position is, uh, let's, let's, let's grant a given, no doubt about it, under rent control circumstances, there's, there are going to be certain people who don't need it who get it, not unlike Social Security. There are going to be some people who get it who don't need it. But to suggest that, that rent control is somehow being pervasively abused well, throughout the island of Manhattan by people doubt? who don't need it, I do have plenty of doubt. Uh, well, you ought to check the numbers, Phil. I mean, I can tell you right. something. Now, one, one little thing. All I'm asking for is a simple thing. Give a means test. If a person makes $150,000 a year working in a big So much of the battle for Twitter is simply about words. Words control ideology, which ultimately controls the people. Musk's objection to how Twitter was being managed was that they had the power to decide what words were allowed, what jokes were allowed, and what news stories were allowed. And that, he rightly believed, was not only destroying Twitter, 
but it was destroying our country too and everything we value. I've heard people say that Elon Musk cares what people think of him, as though they've cast him as a supervillain with no feelings or compassion. Why wouldn't he care? Not many people can take that level of incoming and wipe the slate clean the next day. But we need him. We need more people like him to thrust a bold middle finger at the information monopoly controlled by the left. We need more people with courage to carve a path out of this crippling sea of misery we've created. We need role models who are resilient and who send the message to the young that words are just words. We can survive them. Musk is still a superhero for the modern age, smart enough to notice what threatens our civilization, brave enough to speak up about it, and rich enough to buy Twitter for $44 billion. The tweets by the blue checks that they seem to think matter are just cyberdust, a layer of data to trap them in time as people who were caught up in their own unearned importance before the whole thing came collapsing down before Twitter and this country were wrestled free from their grasp. Thank you for listening to my Substack, sashastone.substack.com. And remember, to thine own self, be true. on the black crime was looking up the truth and as the bombshells of my daily fears explode I try to trace